This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we take a closer look at a high school which caters to the neighboring military bases. Radford High School Principal James Sunday talked with us about the challenges unique to his campus following the release of the school's ready-to-return plan. The bulk of the student body draws from the nearby Air Force, Navy, and Army bases, and to some extent, the Marines and Coast Guard. Enrollment is generally about 1,200, with 70% coming from the military community. So our teachers come back July 29th, I believe, and then our students, August 4th, who will have a freshman orientation, new student orientation for uh, two days, and then our entire student body will come back August 6th. So what's the biggest challenge for you? I think first and foremost is just the safety of the campus. Just uh, Obviously, we, we clean every year, but more so this year is all of the sanitation, uh, preparing for social distancing, uh, you know, getting up the proper signs in the hallways and on the floors. And then I think the biggest concern also is protecting you know, our students, obviously, and our employees, making sure they have all their PPEs in place, you know, face shields and other things that are high traffic areas like our front office and our registrars and our counseling center. Now, I know some schools are providing face shields for teachers and students, and it just mm-hmm. depends on how large the school is. What's the snapshot at Radford? We have a supply of face shields and masks to uh, give our employees. Uh, we have uh, also a inventory on, on hand to give students who possibly don't have those things when they show up to campus. Because you serve a large number of military families uh, here on the island, w- what are your concerns? I, I think just the travel it's in itself. I know that the military has their own safeguards in place, but it's more of, you know, we get kids from all 50 states. Uh, we get kids from different countries coming in. So just making sure that they follow uh, what's expected of them when it comes to quarantine and, and making sure that they, they keep our school safe and following all the procedures and safeguards. We have a strong partnership with the military, and we've been in contact uh, with them and uh, working on making sure that we have the proper uh, rules in place and what's required of them. I know that they've wavered back and forth. Uh, who has to quarantine for 14 days, whether it be family members or service members? Uh, so we're still kind of on standby to make sure we get proper guidance. I know the military has been reluctant to indicate where they might have positive cases just because of a mm-hmm. security issue. Yeah, and I think a lot of that deals with on-base issues. Uh, that's one of the roads we're going to have to cross is if a family member has it and they have a student at school, you know, what is the accountability to keeping the community safe if they are in public schools here in Hawaii. We do a lot of our contact to our school uh, liaison officers, so we are at this point still scheduling to have a sit down and uh, hopefully discuss some of these things that are going to be forthcoming. And for a practical matter, you know, for things like buses, how are you approaching that? So for buses, I, I, the guidance right now is that kids can ride on the bus uh, two to a seat with mask on. They might be consolidating some routes just because of the amount of kids riding the bus on a daily basis since we're only running half the school at a, a given time. But the guidelines for that is basically your know, transportation will stay in place with uh, obviously the cleaning of the buses and kids having to wear masks. So as a complex, we meet on a regular basis every week. So just to kind of keep things in line with our families, we, we agreed upon having an A-B track schedule and also dividing our students uh, A through K and L through Z on the different tracks. So that way, if there's siblings, they're all in school on the same day. And if they're off, then they're off on the same day. If your plan is to kind of keep students in their pods, how do you manage when students arrive on campus earlier or stay later? So those are... Yeah, those are things that are, are going to become a challenge, just making sure that, you know, they uh, social distance, you know, they don't get in large groups. And, and in the most part, hopefully that's just part of society now that they understand those are safeguards for themselves and, and everybody around them. So we definitely will be addressing that and making sure that we educate our students on, you know, proper etiquette while 
on school grounds. I think one of the, the bigger challenges right now is just going to be athletics in itself and extracurricular activities. You know, a lot of the big things we used to do for assemblies, homecoming, and things like that are, are definitely going to be, you know, probably not so often anymore uh, having those during this uh, this time. So I think you know, that's just going to be one of the challenges, just trying to figure out how we can engage our student body and community in the campus, but not having big groups or big functions to do it. Well, you do have that nice field uh, yes. and the bleachers. <laughs> yes, thanks to the military. What about for, let's say, the, the health aides or the, the nurses that you might have on campus? What additional training you know, are they going through? Or? Right, so I think, you know, as part of their job duties too now, it's going to become probably one of the bigger things is just the screening part of it. When, you know, there's a kid that has any of the symptoms, they will definitely do a screening with them and decide whether they're going to go home or not. How are you working for lunch? For us, lunch is going to be at the end of the day. We're trying to, you know, make sure we get all the instructions front-loaded in the beginning of the day uh, with a short recess, and then lunch is basically going to be a grab-and-go at the end of the day. That way we kind of mitigate the sitting in the cafeteria, having the social distance. Students will be able to go in and uh, take their lunch with them. How did you folks deal with yearbooks? Well, we had three-quarters of the year done, so... That was a bonus. We missed out on the spring sports, but we had all the team photos in there, just not a lot of the action shots because the season got cut short. But we were we were pretty much able to fulfill our yearbook uh, responsibilities and get a, a good product out there to our, our kids and families. And so uh, were they able to pick them up? How did you you know manage all that? So just in the whole scope of school operations, we did a textbook drop-off uh, where they returned their textbooks in the student parking lot. Um, by schedule, and then with the yearbook, we did a two-day uh, yearbook pickup in the student parking lot. Also, it's just the drive-through, check them off, and, and handed them their yearbook. Boy, this is a year they're never going to forget, huh? Right, well, and more so, I think. You know, I think twenty class of twenty twenty. Obviously, they missed their fourth quarter of school, but uh, they were celebrated, you know, through the media and uh, all kinds of different other avenues. I, I really feel bad for the class of twenty twenty one who won't even get to do a lot of the activities that are. You know, normal of their senior year, like homecoming and dances and, you know, big assemblies and things like that. So I think all schools are trying to be creative right now to see how we can give them a a memorable experience for their senior year and and all students. So be a thinner yearbook for 2021. So uh, what's the biggest challenge for you, you think? I think the biggest challenge is just going to be just changing the way we do business on campus. I know a lot of the concerns are around safety and just making sure that we do our part in keeping the campus sanitized, keeping our students apart, keeping our teachers safe, and also making sure that we you know, communicate that to the parents and the public that you know we are doing our part here and and obviously the climate changes, we have, you know, a portion of our families now wanting just to go 100% online, which we have an option for, but, you know, that's, it's all new to us. It's kind of running two campuses, a virtual campus and a, a regular campus now. And how did that go, the distance learning for your community? Well, I think for the fourth quarter when we went to the um, distance learning enrichment activities, as they called it, it was a challenge at first. I think, you know, a lot of people were just uneasy, probably working from home all the time on their computers, a lot of screen time now, a lot of non-interaction with the teachers. The positive was our teachers knew our students. They had them for three quarters, so they could, you know, maximize what they wanted to do fourth quarter. But going into this year, you know, being seeing our kids limited amount of times 
the opportunities to really get to know them are lessened, and it's, you know, having that virtual relationship almost. I think a lot of the uh, issues that are going to come up and need areas will be probably unfolded as we open the school year and, you know, kind of dealing with those things and going to kind of be on the run, but making sure that we have our protocols and we problem solve as we go. And so then you'll be uh, continuing to meet with the uh, military representatives. Um, do you have like a breakdown as to how many are predominantly more, you know, Navy versus Air Force or Army or Coast Guard? Uh, we're predominantly Air Force, Army, and Navy. And then, you know, hit or miss, depending on how many military, uh, Marine kids we have, Coast Guard, uh, National Guard. Uh, but we the main three are because we have, you know, joint base next to us mm-hmm. here is Army, Navy, and Air Force. We're more concerned about enrollment, if how much movement the military is doing right now. You know, are they bringing their families here? Are they making them stay put? So we have seen a decrease in enrollment thus far, uh, but we're, we're kind of just waiting to see if there's a spike going to happen with enrollment in August and possibly September. I see. When, when do the families normally come through? A lot of our families usually get in here mid to late July and register. Really? Around um, this time so we're kind of we're, we're kind of watching that, but just our normal traffic in our registrar's office is probably down by about you know 50 percent right now that was radford high school principal james sunday talking about how enrollment of students from military families is currently lagging it's unclear if relocations have been delayed during the pandemic or whether the numbers will go up in the next month Uh, principal sunday says he has only had to hire one teacher this year as his faculty and staff is pretty stable And now we hear from the BBC with the latest pandemic news. Uh, EU leaders continue to debate over a multi-billion dollar euro recovery fund and a new vaccine yields promising results in the United Kingdom. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 20th of July. I'm Alex Ritson. Promising results for a vaccine and a treatment developed in the UK. EU leaders still haven't agreed a multi-billion euro recovery fund and sumo wrestling in front of live studio audiences resumes in Japan. Trials of a coronavirus vaccine developed by the University of Oxford have shown it's safe, causes few side effects and induces a strong immune response in volunteers. Further research is still needed, but our medical correspondent, Fergus Walsh, believes the results are promising. We've got news that shows it produces a strong immune response in both antibodies and T-cell responses, which are both important for controlling infection. It doesn't mean to say it's going to work in the real world, but it is promising. Meanwhile, initial results from another British clinical trial suggest a new treatment could significantly reduce deaths from COVID-19. The tests by biotech firm Synergen involved patients inhaling a protein called interferon beta, which helps the body fight viruses. When given to hospital patients, it cut the odds of them developing severe disease by almost 80%. EU leaders are meeting for a fourth day to try to agree a 750 billion euro coronavirus recovery package. Before heading back to negotiations in Brussels on Monday morning, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said she was hopeful they could reach a compromise. We're entering now in a crucial phase, but I have the impression that uh, European leaders really want an agreement. I'm positive for today. We are not there yet. But things are moving in the right direction. Key sticking point is that five countries want to limit the size of the fund and ensure it consists mostly of repayable loans, not grants. 
Australia is battling a fresh outbreak of the virus with a second day of record cases registered in Melbourne. Officials have launched an inquiry into how infected travellers returned to the country from overseas could have spread the disease despite the government's quarantine programme which forced people to self-isolate in hotels for 14 days. Professor Catherine Bennett is an epidemiologist. There's questions about um, maintenance of the rules that people understood were in place, the training and guidance given to security guards and others involved in supporting the quarantine program, and that's what this inquiry is looking into. New regulations have come into force in France, which has also seen a resurgence of infections. People must now wear face masks in all indoor spaces, such as shops, restaurants and banks, or risk a fine of $150. More than 140,000 people have now died from coronavirus in the US, almost a quarter of the total deaths worldwide. According to Johns Hopkins University, the US has the seventh highest mortality rate. But in an interview with Fox News, President Trump insisted it had one of the lowest. I think we have one of the lowest mortality That's rates true, in the sir. world. We, well, we, we're going we to take a, a look. We had 900 deaths on a single day we will this, take a look. this week. Ready? I, you, you have the numbers, please? because I heard we had the best mortality rate. Multiple countries have launched track and trace systems to help reduce the spread of COVID-19, but privacy campaigners say the system in England has broken data protection laws. The British government admitted it didn't assess the programme's impact on privacy. Jim Killock is the director of the Open Rights Group, which campaigns against snooping by officials. He believes the oversight could worsen the crisis. Rather like doing a fire assessment before you open a building, they haven't done the basic checks to make sure that data is handled safely. So if we have a situation where the software is unsafe, then public trust is undermined. If public trust is undermined, people don't participate in the system, then you have a greater public health problem. Cinemas in China are reopening after six months. Officials have allowed screens in low-risk areas to reopen, but tickets must be sold online, groups should sit at least a metre apart and no food or drinks can be served. For the first time since January, sumo wrestling has been held in front of a live audience in Japan. The tournament began in Tokyo on Sunday, despite a rising number of coronavirus infections there in recent days. Spectators have to get their temperature checked, wear face masks and refrain from cheering. But these fans said it was worth it. Well, it's scary, isn't it? But I love sumo. You enjoy it live by being a part of the spectacle yourself. I am grateful that they are doing this. This is Japan's national sport. You want to watch this live. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
For today's trivia test, we look at the culinary staple of early Chinese immigration to Hawaii and the neighborhood institutions that sprang up as a result. Chop suey, the much-beloved Chinese-American dish, has a beloved place in the larger melting pot of Hawaii cuisine. The word itself is a rough translation of a Cantonese phrase, which means miscellaneous leftovers, and and traces its union back to the Guangdong province of China. The early chop suey houses that opened in Hawaii's territorial days were an early example of Asian fusion by necessity, a blend of traditional Chinese dishes tempered to match Western palates and tastes. While chop suey joints are not as common as they were in the old days, a number of neighborhood institutions still exist to this day. Restaurants like Nice Day, Hoi Tin, and Poa Chop Suey still carry the torch for the original slew of Chinese-owned restaurants in Hawaii. Perhaps the most famous defunct chop suey house is Wo Fats, the iconic Chinatown building which closed its doors in 2005. With its high green pagodas and imposing red columns, the restaurant was the longest-running chop suey house in Hawaii before it closed. Now, for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us when the Wo Fat Chop Suey House opened its doors? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Today, we take you to Springdale, Arkansas. It's home to KMRW 98.9, a low-powered FM station catering to the Marshallese community there. Take a listen to some Marshallese music. heard about the station through Dr. Sheldon Ricklin, the Marshallese doctor who hosts a health program on KMRW, uh, which has been particularly important during this health crisis. We talked to the station general manager, Larry Muller, who shared with us that one of his staffers died from COVID-19 just about two weeks ago. The radio call letters stand for Marshallese Radio Worldwide. It has been offering music, news, and health programming for the past five years. I just got all my equipment, new equipment to upgrade so that I'll be able to use FX software. I'm trying to see if I can connect to Marshall Island from this end for the news broadcasting so that people are going to be able to listen to the news from the Marshall Island. I'm in the process now of working on it. I, I, I got all the equipment I need. Hopefully it works. Okay, so, but sometime this summer? Yeah, soon. 
As soon as I'm so excited about it. A lot of people here, they, I think they are so missing the Marshall Islands. They want to know what's going on in the islands. Like at this time, they don't know what is happening in the Marshall Islands. So they'll be in real time so that people know what's going on. In the past years, nobody knows what's happening. All the resources, they were available for the community. They don't know about them. Now they stop knowing what is happening in, the, in Arkansas. Now they know where to go. Can you talk about the situation with COVID? Because I understand Dr. Sheldon Rickland has a, a health show. Mm. It's just helpful information for the community. The COVID-19 is, is a big thing, yes, is that, you know, we need a lot of uh, family members. And, and because of our lifestyles back home and, you know, family have come together, and, you know, and and people are not really much. It's the first time that you know, I think people have been understanding how this one, uh, how this disease has been affecting so many lives. And now because of Dr. Riegling and the task force, I see that people start understanding that it's very important to wear a mask. I just try to make sure that we use all the media platform to reach the Marshallese community. Yeah. And you mentioned that someone in your family died of COVID? It's one of my uh, staff. I couldn't believe it that it happened. I didn't see him, and I just heard that he was in the hospital, and finally they told me that he died, and I was so sad. It was so sad, you know, to lose someone that you know. And so you're more resolved than ever just to get the word out, get health information out to your community. Yes, that's what I do. I to make sure that we connect the community together and make sure they understand what's going on. No, from the Marshall Island to take out the news from the Marshall Island, hopefully I can do it a different way. Because the Marshall Island, I've been in contact with the radio station back home, but they don't have their own app online. You know, they've been using a link, and they don't have their own. Nobody's been helping them out. And uh, I'm trying to figure out how can I be able to bring the news and information from the Marshall Island so the community will know about the Marshall community what is happening in real time, you know. I spoke to the to the station back home when I was there two years back. I explained to him about the dreams that, you know, why do we do this? Uh, you know, I know that a lot of Marshall has been asking me on the road, and they say, hey, why do you, you know, bring the news from the Marshall Island? Those are in Marshallese so that we'll be able to know what is going on with our, with our family in the Marshall Island. So that was good that in my mind for many years. I've been thinking about that, give up. A lot of thought on that, and I see that hotel be a good thing to connect the people here to to the Marshall Island. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that would be a good thing. And there are yeah. other Marshallese communities elsewhere across the state on the West Coast. You know, I was told like Missouri, uh, I think Oklahoma. Yes, with the apps that I have, two of them, the one for the iPhone and one for the Android. I was meant to you know connect all the Marshallese like in multiple time like. 144,000 people listening multiple times. I don't know who and who, but all over through the apps. And I see a result um, because I, I can look through the, the, the programs that I have, the software that I have, and I'll be able to tell who and who been able to listen, how many people, number of people been listening, connected to the station every day or within hours or, and, and then in a month. Dr. Sheldon Rickland, has a health program on your station, and I know the community in Spokane reached out to him to also record something uh, for the community there, just so that they understand the risks and know what they can do to protect themselves. And and he gives the message, I guess, in your own native language. Yes, sometimes people they miss out the time to listen to the programs. That's why I put it on the Facebook page. I'm just trying to use as much. Um, a media platform to make sure that we reach the Marshallese community in various ways, you know. So I think we see the outcome is, is very effective because I've been seeing a lot of people now start 
you know the importance of wearing masks. But before you can you tell them they can, you know isolate yourself of your system away, they don't bother about it. Mm. And now it's getting improved. I can see the big difference now. Do you have any family or friends that work in any of the the plants, the poultry plants, the meat plants there in Arkansas? Yeah, I have one of my son working at one of the plants, and one, uh, two of them. The employees have been tested, I think, at the Tyson plants, uh, and that's a good thing, and, and uh, they've been able to identify positive cases to prevent the spread there at work. Everybody's doing their part, and it's great to have all these people involved. The other packs, we were so crazy because so many of them went to the hospital. Because one of your staff members tested positive and died, I don't know, are there other precautions that you're taking at the radio station? Yeah, we are. I always tell myself to go test it. And also they are on quarantine after they've been tested, so they're on quarantine. So only myself at this phase and now I'm working. <laughs> Try to put everything together, two of them, now tell them to be on quarantine for a while to see what's happened. And I did go online uh, to see that there are um, community members that are participating in Zoom meetings. The music that I've heard is is really uh, lively and entertaining. <laughs> You've got very talented musicians over there. Oh yeah, there are there are a lot of lot of musicians. But, you know, mostly we don't really know, but we just go by listen by the ears. You know, that's why I grew up with music just by ears and play the music. Yeah, the, the <laughs> couple of clips that I checked out were similar to Jawaiian. So you play a mix of music there at the station. Oh, yeah, I play a lot of I mean, some music there, the old, oldies, and where a lot of people like the old music and the new new the, uh, music that the uh, the new, new generation music, where young generation, they love their music. So we try to mix, we play mix of music. I know that it's been a blessing to have this radio station for the community. I'm so blessed to be able to have it available. Knowing that it will be happen to have a radio station like this, I was luckily to be involved with it. And I've been, you know, putting all my effort to it to make sure that it reaches the community. And I know that it's been worth it to, at this time that we are going through this difficult time. And it's, you know, sorry for well, most of the people have been lost, but hopefully that will be get through this and back to normal. And uh, I'm happy that I've been able to um, connect to, with you and. And uh, hopefully that in the future we'll be able to do much better than what we have now to spread out the more uh, of what we do for the community, especially the, these programs that are available, resources that are available. Community. We hope that uh, we will be able to uh, be uh, able to be benefit uh, from them. And and these are dreams to connect everybody together. Just because it's such a stressful time for everybody. Yeah, that's right. Just keep up hope. Don't lose hope. Just do our best. I'm so glad we connected. And thank you for all that you do. I wish there was some, like, grant or something you could apply for to help you out. Hopefully. Maybe, yeah. hopefully, maybe one of these days, who knows? I do a lot of things for the school as a public service announcement. So we, we do a lot of stuff for them. So they always make a request. You know, we have, like, evening requests so that they can make requests for their loved ones or birthday requests. Are they asking for special music for some of their friends or relatives that have died? Yes, we have special music for them, too. That was Larry Miller, general manager of KMRW, a radio station in Arkansas, which caters to the thousands of Marshallese which have relocated to the mainland U.S. following the atomic testing of their islands. There have been more than 30 COVID deaths in the Marshallese community in Arkansas. While Marshallese make up less than 3% of the population in that state, they account for more than half of the COVID deaths so far. But here's a kind of request that the station has been playing of late. Holly Road is 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, a company of people dedicated to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands since 1882. Matson.com. Coronavirus concerns have led to a lot of folks postponing their regular medical care for things like cancer screening, diabetes, high blood pressure, and more. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about what's urgent and what might be safe to postpone for your health care needs and how telemedicine can help. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today highlights a story about the recent indictments of a high-profile Honolulu businessman and 10 others on serious charges of racketeering and murder for hire tied to a young man who had been missing for four years. Uh, Hawaii, uh, Civil Beach, Honolulu Civil Beats, Chad Blair is on the line this morning. Hi, Chad. Hi, good morning. Happy Monday, Catherine. Happy Monday. So this story is uh, by Jim Dooley, who knows a right. thing or two about organized we're lucky, crime. Yeah, we're lucky to have Jim join us from time to time because anybody who followed journalism in Hawaii over the last 30 years, that includes you, that includes yes. me, uh, have loved the reporting of, of Jim Dooley. He's got a book out about crime in Hawaii. And he's got a, a very detailed piece up on our website, which is doing gangbusters, by the way. People are just gobbling this up, about Michael Miskey Jr., who is alleged to be a mob boss with, uh, according to the story, a well-documented life of crime and violence. And because of that incident that you mentioned about somebody missing, uh, Jonathan Fraser disappeared four years ago, uh, Michael Miskey potentially could face the death penalty uh, if federal investigators are successful in their prosecution. Yeah, I mean, this case uh, goes back years. I mean, there were mm. there were uh, news stories that, that the, you and I have covered, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the court cases and the the uh, the nightclub there uh, downtown uh, in Honolulu and that uh, professional football player, I think. So that was, yeah, that was during the Pro Bowl, I think, smashing uh, someone over the head with a champagne bottle. I won't go into too much, but... Let's tell you who Miski is. He, he is, in fact, a nightclub owner, uh, runs Terminite Extension Company, has real estate holdings. But the allegations is that his Miski Enterprises, as it's called, as, as you indicated at the top, committed murders, trafficking drugs, acts of violence. Uh, these are such serious allegations that uh, Kenji Price, the U.S. attorney here in Hawaii, said, look, there shouldn't be any bail for this guy. Let me just quickly read you something from Jim's story. According to the uh, Attorney General, Miski had a, a, a coded system to describe the level of harm he wanted to inflict upon his victims. 20% meant sufficient harm to intimidate. 50% meant sufficient force to cause physical injury. 80% to cause injuries that require hospitalization. And 100% meant murder. That is according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. 
Yeah, pretty creepy stuff. It is. And in the case of Jonathan Fraser, the young man, the situation there is that uh, Miski's son, Caleb, was in a car accident in 2015. Uh, Miski, uh, the father, believed that somehow Jonathan, who was good friends with Caleb, somehow had something to do with the accident. Well, lo and behold, a couple months later, Fraser completely disappears. They've never found his body and, and that's one of the things that they're looking at. Uh, creepily enough, there's a detail from Jim's story about how Miski apparently bought a Boston whaler, right, an outboard, a boat for about 400000 around that time. And, and the illusion, the, the, uh, the allegation essentially is that the body probably was buried at sea. Well, now, uh, there there have been, you know, uh, lots of... Uh you know, stories and uh, in the news that, like I said, over the years that I think you and I have both covered uh, different aspects of Miski's operation. Uh, uh, but it's it, it's interesting to see. I mean, when, when you see the allegations set out in the indictment, you know, uh, uh, how this is all going to play out. He does have a defense attorney. Yes, he does, who did not comment. Thomas Otake did not comment <coughs> to Jim for his story. Uh, his official comment is that yeah, you know, these allegations might read like Hollywood drama, but in fact, you know, blah, 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 my, my, my client is innocent and whatnot. But in fact, um, Miski does have a, a serious record, six felony convictions on the books. He's said to have a quick temper, to be violent by nature. And by the way, some of his work was involved with uh, the Teamsters, specifically the Hawaii Teamsters Union's movie unit, and here's where another name comes up. Anybody reading Jim Dooley? Anybody following crime in Hawaii? Remember the name Ronald King? Yes. <laughs> that was the famous hitman and also tied to the Teamsters. I think he actually was a, a unit driver back in the old Magnum P.I. So it's a rich but also a very disturbing history about organized crime, allegations of it here in the island. Well, we'll have to see how this uh, all plays out uh, and see what sticks. But certainly a uh, very uh, uh, kind of a wide-ranging uh, I- investigation by uh, the Justice Department. Right. Not all, not all peace and aloha here in Hawaii, Catherine. All right. Okay. Well, we'll have to uh, stay tuned for uh, <laughs> uh, a follow-up with uh, uh, Jim Dooley's uh, tracking on this case. Uh, well, he, he does it afar. <laughs> yes, he does, he, but he does it well. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Captain. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to read Jim Dooley's story. QAnon was once just a cultish internet conspiracy, but with a major assist from the president this November, there will be real-life QAnon-associated candidates on the ballot. I stand with President Trump. I stand with Q and the team. And together, we can save our republic. On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Starting this evening at 7, following The Body Show. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today, we're tracking the elusive Planet Nine on your Monday Stargazer. 
Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe that surrounds our tiny, very troubled planet. As usual, we turn to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we happen to have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn, can be seen in the east just after 6.30 p.m. in the evening. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase, which means stargazing conditions will remain excellent through week's end. And I don't know if that'll be good for seeing the mysterious Planet Nine, but I know we're at least going to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Planet Nine has become somewhat of a running joke in astronomical circles over the decades. And multiple optical and infrared surveys to find this elusive member of our solar system's family have so far turned up nothing conclusive. However... Computer modeling based on orbits of distant solar system bodies indicates that something may be out there. And now a team from Harvard has presented the possibility that Planet Nine might not be a planet at all, but a black hole. And a black hole sounds pretty dangerous to have lurking so close nearby. And I guess dangerous to, is that dangerous to the the whole solar system? Well, it would be if this was any kind of normal stellar-sized black hole. And the idea may not be as far-fetched as it seems. Now, this wouldn't be a stellar-sized one. In fact, modeling, if it is correct, it would be about the size of a grapefruit, but it would weigh in at a colossal five times the mass of the Earth. That would indeed give it enough gravitational influence to affect the orbits of bodies in the outer solar system. Let me get this straight. Size of a grapefruit, but weighs a whole bunch more than the Earth. (laughs) Well, that's the weird thing about black holes. (laughs) They are extremely dense. And how do you find a grapefruit-sized black hole out there, huh? Because they don't emit light, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And this is where the next generation of telescopes comes in, specifically the LSST, which will be sensitive enough to capture small bursts of light from asteroids and comets that are unfortunate enough to collide with this black hole, if it exists. And I'm going to guess from your demeanor that this grapefruit-sized black hole, if it exists, is not going to be a threat to anything. No threat whatsoever. If it exists, it will be in the Oort cloud, a region of icy bodies that's almost halfway to the nearest star. So, if anything, the mystery of Planet Nine is about to get a whole lot more intriguing. We'll look for updates on our potentially grapefruit-sized black hole out there (laughs) with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week on Stargazer, which we keep at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we took a look at the Asian fusion dish that was a culinary staple in Hawaii's early days of Chinese immigration. Chop suey has a long and storied history in the islands and has lent its name to countless Chinese restaurants across the state. The food of most early Hawaiian chop suey joints were reflective of the tastes of immigrants from Chengsang District, the same place from which a majority of Chinese plantation workers in Hawaii originated. Among the most iconic of these restaurants was Wo Fat Chop Suey Restaurant, a Chinatown institution that discontinued operations in 2005 after over 100 years of business. In its heyday, this temple of chop suey entertained the likes of Elvis Presley and Jackie Kennedy and was a favorite of American servicemen during World War II. Wo Fat Chop Suey was not, the only, was not only the most famous of Hawaii's chop suey restaurants, 
but it was in fact the oldest, originally opening its doors for business in 1882. And for those of you wondering what will become of the shuttered Chinatown institution, they might still be hope for Wofat. The iconic building was recently bought by an investment firm with the intention of restoring the building into a boutique hotel and restaurant. No winners today. We get to keep our tote bag. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Malka Mackay segment, we turn to horticulturist Bernice Fielding, who's with WATG, a global design firm. Prior to working in the island, she spent time in Canada and shared ideas about changes that may need to be done by the visitor industry during these times of physical distancing. Canada is such an amazingly beautiful country, and part of what makes it beautiful is kind of that commitment to having green. I mean, Vancouver, you have to have a park that's accessible within five minutes walking distance to every person who lives there. That's so wonderful um, that they, they embrace that. Isn't it? And to me, sort of coming from something like that, it just, you know, it gets your blood going that you're like, oh, we can do this everywhere. I mean, Honolulu has talked about that lay of green from, you know, Diamond Head all the way through. And I think it's doable. You know, it would just have to take some thinking on, on everyone's end. So what was that experience for you being in Vancouver in Canada and how they perceive greenery? Canada itself is very sustainable. They're very focused on keeping their resources. And so being exposed to, for me, I was um, an executive director of a botanical garden, and then I moved on to director of horticulture for a landscape architects firm. And you know, at that firm, we were doing residential homes, but the residents are focused on outdoor experiences in their own homes. You know, there's edible gardens and rooftop gardens and green walls and any type of green that people can incorporate into their homes, offices, streets, any of those things. It's it's second nature. So that's really put an impact on kind of how I see um, the built environment. And so with that background and where you're at now, I mean, what are you envisioning? What what do we need to do as we try and reopen tourism again and try and get back to some normal? Right. Well, I think our new normal is going to be different than what we used to have. I'm a horticulturist, not a landscape architect, but I think there's an opportunity for science-based horticulturists to connect with landscape architects and architects and kind of hooey together to come up with a plan that is Changing the built environment, which in some ways needs to happen, but incorporating what I had mentioned as the healing power of nature by incorporating that into spaces, that's going to let people feel more confident, I think, mentally and emotionally. If they, nature is, gives you calmness. It's been proven. I mean, it's the reason we have forest bathing and therapeutic gardens. You know, it's the reason that things like Lomi Lomi Massage and La'o Lapa'au exist, it's because of what people believe of the healing power in nature. So to me, I think incorporating more green, incorporating more nature, looking at spaces that currently exist and see how we might be able to change those to have more nature in it and be more representative of what a guest or person might need at this time. One of my thoughts is there's... um, opportunities for guests to do things like outdoor spa treatments. So maybe taking some of their 
traditionally built space, adding green to it, adding plants to it, being able to change our, if, if you're oceanfront, how can you have people in different private spaces at the beach? Um, it, obviously, if in Waikiki, that doesn't exist because the hotels don't own the beach. But even down at that area, can you create garden rooms that separate people and still give them the same experience of Hawaii that they want? So incorporating indigenous plants, maybe there's such things as biofiltration plunge pools um, or natural tidal pools, things that give people that separation, but still feel like they're experiencing, you know, what they came to Hawaii for or wherever, be it um, onsens in Japan or wherever they happen to be traveling to. I'd like to make sure that whatever horticulture or nature that's brought into resorts, and if it's not just focused on Hawaii, that it is very much matching the natural environment to the place where they're visiting and that it incorporates the culture and the native plant material of wherever they happen to be. I think the movement of native plants has taken off, and any new designs that have been incorporated into hotels around Hawaii really do utilize a lot of native plants. But with that said, there's still a lot of old landscape that uses lawn space and what tourists consider to be Hawaii plants, but are actually very much invasive plant material. So to me, I would like to be able to focus on if we can't just use solid natives, which obviously sometimes you need different things. We also need to focus on whatever isn't native. We need to make sure that it's non-invasive. And we do still have a lot of invasive material that's used throughout Hawaii. You know, I just recently was able to visit the rooftop garden at the Prince Hotel, which was wonderful because they were, you know, actually raising the herbs that they use in their kitchen. Yeah. And it was just a wonderful use of space and just kind yeah. of a real treat for something that would yeah. be really bland up on the rooftop. And things like that, that sort of thinking outside of the box and having that farm to table or edible landscape where you can... It, it's multifaceted. I mean, not only are you getting food for your kitchen, but it's an educational aspect for your guests. It's something that they could, as I said, you know, it could be ecotourism where they come in and they get to understand the plant. Take, for example, that a hotel decided to do a, a la'au lapa'au garden, which is obviously the Hawaii practice of wellness through herbs and native plants. I mean, there's an opportunity there not only to collect plant material, but introduce people to cultural education as well as ecotourism. I mean, there's areas, I mean, Halekoa, as I mentioned, has tons of space. You could do stormwater collection or irrigation overflow collection and create a small lo'i and have that be an educational aspect in Waikiki that people can learn from. They could volunteer their time. It could be part of their experience, you know, on their travels if they wanted it to. But it, it also stops people from having to jump in a car, clog up traffic, drive all the way halfway to the North Shore to see Aloe, and then come back again. So I think there's opportunities for us to use plants educationally and culturally throughout Waikiki and the rest of the hotels and resorts around island.
I think I know of, of one resort where they offer yoga outdoors yeah. in a pavilion uh, on the grounds. So it's those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, I think there's opportunities to expand our opportunities in nature. You know, if you do studies, it has been proven that people's mental and physical well-being is much stronger if they actually exercise outdoors versus indoors. And I think there's opportunities for maybe it's yoga, maybe it's Tai Chi in the park, maybe it's something more intense than that. Biking paths, walking paths. I mean, could you imagine if there was a bike path that went from, I don't know, Kaaba all the way up to Turtle Bay? You know, there may be opportunities. And of course, that's outside of hospitality. But there's opportunities for us as a as well as the hospitality industry to look at how we can incorporate a lot more green. You know, if everybody hopped on their bikes and decided to stop at food trucks on the way and have an experience of, you know, local food and all of those things, I personally feel that a lot of people would want to visit that as a healthier option to tourism than just sitting at a resort on the beach. With this prolonged health and economic crisis, we're going to need to do a bunch of healing. We are. And I think, you know, I mean, if you talk to people who even live on island and say, do you know what Lao Lapa'au is? A lot of people don't. It is, you know, just understanding the amazing culture that is here and how I think you can support the culture, support education, and also support the environment at the same time. I mean, if we had the option to grow more native plants that could then be treated, you know, you could offer a Lomi Lomi massage at your hotel outside in a green space, you know, you're getting rid of invasive plants, you're putting the right plant in the right place and therefore mitigating how much irrigation you might need, you're offering outdoor experiences for your guests, you're giving them cultural experiences, I think it's just a win-win. That was WATG horticulturist Bernice Fielding with a prescription for healing as we prepare to welcome visitors back to the islands later this year. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we talk more about issues at the forefront for our kupuna. Is your loved one in a care home or recovering from the virus? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them all on the Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.